0: Welcome to Beyond Politics broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. And look, things have accelerated in the world. Three weeks ago, on the roundtable show, the balance of power show that I do that's in the Capital Close Up podcast feed and also broadcast on WKXL. I asked the panel: is in new governor, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin making a huge tactical error by fighting school mask mandates? That's that's sort of the question as it was relevant three weeks ago. Well, not so relevant anymore. Today, as we record this, heading into the weekend, Democrats, including 10 state senators in Virginia and governors all over the Northeast are just falling over themselves. They cannot lift mask mandates fast enough. The news this week that Donald Trump was hand shredding important White House documents was quickly surpassed by the news that there are massive gaps in the White House call log on January 6th that's suspicious. Don't worry, people. You don't have to pay attention to my last sentence because it's going to be bypassed. I guarantee you it's going to be bypassed. By the time you listen to this on WKXL radio, there will be a new story that will have made last week's story not relevant anymore. The point is we on this show try to step back from this breathless day-to-day news cycle driven type. Oh my gosh, what's the last thing that happened type coverage? And look at some of the deeper trends some of the bigger picture of what's going on there's no one better that i can think of to do that than michael cohen now that's the last time you're going to hear me say michael because our listeners are going to be confused you think that i'm talking about donald trump's right hand man goon no i'm talking about mike cohen we will charitably say mike cohen he is the author of modern political campaigns he is a previous guest here on beyond politics Mike's worked in politics for 25 years, primarily in polling, which gives him a great view across everything going on, the major trends in American politics and society. He worked for Gallup. He started two political firms. Um, He's worked for Microsoft as their DC pollster. He teaches. He's taught most recently at Johns Hopkins University, and he is a great commentator. You can find him on all kinds of podcasts and shows and Sirius XM radio and you know, he's, he's sort of the Lord of all media. Mike Cohen, welcome back to Beyond Politics.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: Well, I, it's, it's delightful to have you. Uh, we had such a great conversation last time. For folks who are just catching this on the radio, or maybe you missed last episode, go back in your Beyond Politics podcast feed. You haven't subscribed? You're kidding me. No, 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 first go subscribe to Beyond Politics and then go back in the feed. I think it was in October that I had Mike on the show to talk about his book, Modern Political Campaigns. We're going to get to that book in a second. But I have to start, I mean, speaking of you dominating all media, I have to start with, as we record this, you have the number one opinion column on the Capitol Hill newspaper, The Hill, right now. And you you make kind of an interesting case. I haven't seen anyone make this kind of a full-throated argument like this before. You say, hey, Mike Pence, run for president. Please run for president. I'm I just... I want to quote one paragraph here. You say, we currently only have one political party, the Democrats, with whom I disagree often because you're a Republican, but they are professionals. The GOP is irrationally invested in just one of its members. America needs two functioning political parties to be effective and Pence can bring the GOP back. So what do you mean? Why should Mike Pence run?
1: (laughs) Well, thanks for all that introduction stuff. I mean, I'm definitely going to package that and, you know, show, show my wife, my kids, you know, people who are, you know, basically don't listen to this thing. Right. I was um, going to try man, to
0: get a two minutes yeah, of promo right there. You oh, know what? Yes. You, you can cut out the rest of the show and
1: just say, here's, the, here's
0: the important part.
1: I'm I've, awesome. I've done things. I've done things. I'm a dork. No, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I look, I think, I think Pence is undervalued. And I think that one of the more interesting things when you write a piece is like, okay, well, what is everyone saying? And not to be contrarian, but if there's an opening that people aren't saying, I think you should write it. And I felt like this week um, there's been a lot of dunking on Mike Pence uh, for not being the thing they want Mike Pence to be, which would have been a Democrat. Um, De- De- Mike Pence, when he was Vice President, was never going to criticize Trump. He was never going to, um, you know, get too far out ahead of where the ballots were being counted in states. He, he was not going to do those things. He was going to be who he is which is basically a mainstream basic republican like if you were to draw it up on you know out of you know if you have put it to like lego blocks if you would have yeah yeah like lego blocks you'd be like okay and you'd end up with something like mike pence you know and you would put the fly on his head because that's funny and you, you would move on right but, but the thing is is like mike pence is in a complete no lose situation. Number one, um, he can be the one guy who can weaken Trump. Okay, the media will be all over this if Pence decides to run because it has never happened where a former vice president, who, you know, from a defeated administration, went after his president for the same nomination four years later. That would be unprecedented. It would be a legitimate news story, and it would be. Legitimate political discourse. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll get the there. Stuff. We're yeah, going we'll to get there. there. I know. So I, th- I think that's the first thing you got to think about. It's like, number one, it would be a big news story. Um, it would be a way for Mike Pence to separate him finally from Donald Trump and to say to people who have followed him throughout his career, I've always been that guy. I spent time with this this other guy who was Trump because that's what you do when you're vice president. You know, no no vice president has ever come out and been like, not the guy I work for sucks. And here's why. Like it just doesn't work that way. So number one, it would be really good for him to sort of rebrand himself. Number two, he could actually do the GOP a favor by weakening Trump. It's pretty clear that there are parts of things that Trump did that he absolutely agrees with, probably because he pushed Trump to do it. And he can claim some of that. And the other thing, too, is that he can weaken him in a way that no one else can. Chris Christie could throw bombs at him, Marco Rubio could be a robot, and Nikki Haley could be swarmy on on the stomp, and and, all these other people could do these things. But the one person who knows Trump behind closed doors is Mike Pence. He knows where the soft underbelly is, he knows what makes him angry, he knows what throws him off, he knows what he's not proud of, he knows what he's, he's concerned about in his own mind. There's just too much working together for a guy to look at, look at him across the stage and be like, you know what, look, I know who you are. And everyone's gonna know that Pence knows who he is. If Christie comes at him and says, well, we all know Trump does this, it's different than if Pence says, I was in the Oval Office, it was the two of us, this is what you said to me. He is a much more believable narrator of what went on there than anyone else around. And so he can number one, defend what they did um, And, you know, the policy aspects that most mainstream Republicans feel okay with it. And then on the other side, attack him in a very unique way. The other thing he can do is he can show outwardly that there's a reasonable GOP alternative. That, yes, you know, conservatism has sort of evolved. There's sort of new things that it stands for. But it's packaged in a way that seems fairly reasonable. And, you know, not only that a couple of years ago, we elected that guy on the Democrat side. He was the most, Joe Biden was the most reasonable Democrat that you can find out of everyone in the field. You know, the most mainstream, the most prepared, um, the most not likely to fly off the handle for no good reason uh, or start a war, right? And so that is, that could be Mike Pence. And then the final thing I'd say this is that even if you lose, you still win. This is essentially white men can't jump all over again. And people should should watch that movie. you know, I forget who turns to the main character, Woody Harrelson, and said, sometimes when you lose, you really win, and sometimes when you win, you really lose. This is a no-lose situation for Pence because no one expects him to win, no one expects him to get the nomination, but if Trump doesn't run, then there's no good reason why he can't beat that guy. Um, he already is running ahead of other people in the field comfortably, and he's competitive with Ron DeSantis, who people really don't know, and as soon as they get to know him, that'll change. <laughs> right, right. Because that's what happens. There's nothing better in politics than being the guy who they think you are and they, before you run, or the woman. Hillary Clinton's numbers were off the charts until the moment you decided to run for president. Yeah. Every single person who runs for president is always better as an aspirational candidate than as a real candidate. So that this is why NBA race. teams
0: this is why nba teams value draft picks right. more than drafted players because yes. the theory is always, always ideal, the upside. So perfect so you know i i all right the moment has come i want to circle back to legitimate political discourse because sure. it sounds like what you're saying in, in your op-ed which people should check out just go to the hill or or google michael cohen and the hill but just beware, you may get some hits that aren't the ones you're looking for.
1: They just want to go to the hill.com and go to the, go to the hill.com. It's number, one,
0: it's number one right now.
1: And, and you hopefully- also follow me. You can follow me at Michael Cohen, too, which is, of course, where all the crazy stuff comes. Because yes. I think I'm the other guy. But follow the yeah. other guy at Michael Cohen 212.
0: Look, I'm definitely going to put this pod up as Michael Cohen on Beyond Politics. Let of people figure it all.
1: out. It's
0: all for the clicks. I, I mean I do yeah, exactly. I, I, I do want to return to this because what you're what you're basically saying is I I really liked the line about we need two healthy political parties in we this do. country to to restrain the worst impulses of the other. I'm a democrat, but I'm realistic. We we, we have some bad impulses at, at times. We we need we need competition for the same reason that you know if you have um, you know, a, a predator prey cycle in, in nature. If you don't have enough predators to thin the herd, then, you know, you, you grow in overabundance and, uh, you know, your, your herd becomes unhealthy. And it's the same thing with political parties. I mean, we, we do need each other to restrain one another. I got to ask you, it's interesting. You sent a tweet, speaking of your, your, your Twitter handle. I mean, you sent a tweet last week in which you referred to this comment of January 6th was legitimate political discourse. And you said, I'm out, I'm out folks. And I got to tell you for, for a Republican party to lose someone, to get to a point where you lose someone like Mike Cohen, you really got to look in the mirror. I mean, that's a, what would it take to get you back in?
1: Well, I mean, to be fair, I mean, I've been out for a while. I mean, I've been out since, um, I, you know I had the opportunity to work for Trump, turned it down. Um, and I also had, um, you know, I, I watched as, as everyone else I'm sure is listening to this program, you know, it was going on on six, and I was just like, I, I just can't do this. I mean, the, the only person, the only people that I could work for, frankly, um, and support and probably vote for would be people who just know what the truth is and say it. Um, if you're not, like, that's the baseline of what political discourse should be. Like, we should all be talking from truth. Um and we should be debating, you know, how we approach the truth, and and how to, you know, what is what does the truth really mean, and then what what are our what are our opportunities one way or the other. And so, to me, like the, the basic answer to this is that Trump needs to lose. Um, and I think I've said this in my book, and I'll probably say it to anyone who listens to me. Parties don't learn when they win; they only learn when they lose. And they only learn when they lose because they have to take a step back and realize, okay, well, well, what happened here? And that didn't happen like it should have. And like many actually Republicans expected to happen after Trump lost to Joe Biden. The reason why is because Trump decided he's not going to admit that there was a loss. And so, you know, George Costanza, it's not the lie if you believe it. He got everyone to believe it, that there's some stuff going on and you know politics is dirty and there are some shenanigans and some you know things going on with the ballots we'll never know but you know we tried but courts wouldn't listen to us like all those kinds of things and you know all the performative stuff that is the big lie and you know the reason why the big lie is a big lie is because it's it's big and it actually warped how people viewed the election. Now to me you have to go you have to number one stand up and say we lost. You know, and then number two, decide, well, why did we lose? And I would say to you that, um, you know, they, they lost because of Trump. You know, they, they lost 18 because of Trump and they lost 20 because of Trump. And so there's no reason to lose a third time. So the reason why they lose people like me, who probably amount to, frankly, around 15 percent of the party at max, is, um, the reason why they lose us is because we look at this and we're like, well, this is bullshit. <laughs> and I, I think you have, to, you have to decide as a party that we're not gonna be the party of bullshit. Um, we're gonna be the party of something other than bullshit. And once you do that, um, then you have an opportunity to communicate to most Americans and even some Democrats who of course will always say, well, I, I'm open to voting for a Republican but I can't vote for that person. Well, give them a real alternative and then give them a choice. Yeah, I mean, it's,
0: I'm not saying that there is a, a scenario where I would myself vote for a Republican right now yeah, there is. because, <laughs> right. right, because it's, it's the, you know, I ran a campaign uh, back in 2012 where mm-hmm. our, our whole argument was we were running up against a guy who was himself reasonably moderate. And this was a race that we were expected to lose. We were widely expected to lose, and our basic argument was: this was a very split district. It was in Massachusetts, but unlike the uh, uh, the stereotype, this was actually a very evenly divided, a, a generic Democrat. It's a competitive only, one, right? Only, yeah, only does two or three points better than a generic Republican, right. And so it it, it was going to be tight, and we were expected to lose we were sort of the number one draft pick by most political prognosticators to lose a seat anywhere in the country. Yeah. But our basic argument was you cannot vote for this relatively moderate guy because you get the whole kit and caboodle that comes with him. You By voting for him, you enable all of this other stuff. At the time, our argument was against Paul Ryan. Let me tell you, that seems like a quaint lovely time in America where it's like the worst thing that could happen to you is that Paul Ryan might uh you know get some power in America. I mean, there there are actually worse things. I've seen it. We've all lived through it. So I don't I don't personally foresee a scenario where, you know, I, I would I, I that same argument still applies to me. But that being said, I do quietly root for this. I mean I, I root for finding the pathway back to a Republican Party And I I just want to circle back. This is, it's sort of a pitch for your book because in our last discussion, you said something really interesting that ultimately what you foresee in the future, hopefully, maybe this is aspirational in American politics, was sort of a money ball effect. You used the word earlier of undervalued, that Mike Pence is Mm -hmm. undervalued. And and you made a pitch for the idea, and I think this is one of the reasons people should read your book, that tacking toward the center has become undervalued in American politics. Sure. And I'm what I'm what I'm hoping for, even though I may not vote this way, is that we will find our way back, that the Republican Party will find its way back. So that for Democrats, we have to, we have to restrain our impulses and we have to appeal to the center of, of American politics again in a way that we we no longer have to. That to me is the pathway back to a a healthier American politics. I'm just, I don't know if I'm hopeful that that's going to happen, but I think you're onto something with your, with your article. So I, I, I commend it to people. Look, we have to, we have to take a break in, in just two or three minutes. I want to just start on a topic that we may have to bridge across the the radio break that we're about to take, which is political analyst, uh, Clinton White House veteran, that was Bill Clinton back in the 90s, Doug Sosnick, writes a, a memo every every couple of months, you know, maybe two, or three times a year. And it's sort of like a Christmas goodie for for DC insiders who have nothing better to do with their time. It's a must read. And he laid out in his most recent memo, people should check it out. They can Google it. It's If, if you're into this right. kind of thing, great That's reading. Right. And yeah. he said, look, There's a pathway here for Democrats to turn things around. Everyone's predicting that it's going to be a total wipeout in the midterms for Democrats. But now we're beginning to maybe see some signs that the worm is turning. Maybe things aren't quite so bleak. This feels a little bit like the the Star Wars movie where it's like, you know, they're on the Death Star and they're like, we've analyzed the attack. There is a danger. It's like maybe this is a long shot here, but let, let's just tease this idea and then we'll get much more into it in a minute or so. Just high level. Do you see it? Do you is this like a remote thing or do you see a realistic chance that Democrats could defy history and have a pretty strong midterm maybe even hold on to the house?
1: I think the house is gone. Um, I, I don't think that's—I don't think it's realistic. But I think holding on to the Senate realistic. And I, I think that all you have to do is hold on to one of the two. Um, and I think that the Senate for them is actually the more, more important one at this point because they're going to want to be able to, you know, at least have their own team. So I, I think that to a real extent, you—you you might be able to narrow the loss in the House. But I do think that the House is gone uh, because of just on the retirements alone. I think it's going to be very difficult uh, to hold. But I think in the Senate, you actually may be able to hold on to the time.
0: Right before the break, I posed the question to Mike, is there a chance? This, this sounds like a dumb and dumber moment. You're saying there's a chance. You're saying there's a chance. Right. It's been suggested that maybe, maybe there's a pathway for Democrats to defy history. History suggests that they're going to get absolutely shellacked in the midterms. But there are some encouraging signs recently. Massive jobs growth. We're beginning to see COVID uh, numbers falling precipitously. We're, we're we're beginning to get some encouragement, um, you know, positive news in the country, and you know, maybe that'll change people's mood. Maybe it gives them pathway. So, Mike, you were saying, not very likely in the House, could be possible in the Senate. I want to ask you. How? What do you, I mean, based on all of your experience as a pollster, as a political consultant, what is, what is the right pathway? It, it, this week, Politico wrote up the following sentence. They, they basically said, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader for the Republicans, so Mike McCarthy, uh, Mike McCarthy, uh, Kevin McCarthy is betting probably correctly so the people outside the beltway, or at least people who might vote for Republicans, don't give a rip about anything related to January 6th. Democrats have not entirely let that go. So let's say Politico is correct. The theory for Republicans is all we have to do is talk about inflation, talk about schools, talk about masks, talk about anything that we can criticize about Joe Biden and let the momentum carry us. What do you make of of the Democrats? What should their strategy be? Should they focus on January 6th? Should they focus on other things? What's their best path?
1: So there's there's two paths, right? So you have what the Republicans are are trying to do. So you have adults like, I wouldn't put Kevin McCarthy in that category, but I I would put McConnell in that category. You have adults like McConnell who are looking at this and saying, look, Even when they ask him, what are you for? He says, ask me after the election. He knows exactly what he needs to do in this this cycle. He needs to hit everything that's going on that everyone's upset about. COVID, masks, education, um, inflation, lost businesses in your area. I mean, the general malaise of how everyone is feeling right now. That works if that's how everyone feels in November. That's how everybody feels right now. Okay. All that is accurate right now. But as we know in politics, a day is how much, a week is how much, a month is how much. And, you know, I mean, you just look at it and you go, okay. So that, that's not really a strategy. That's a tactic, right? That's a, okay, I'm going to react to the political environment. Well, that's, mm. that's okay if you think that all of a sudden the political environment is going to be the same the whole way through. It may not be. The one thing, if you are, Joe Biden right now is you are secretly thanking every single democratic governor, every single state legislator who is right now saying lift the masks who is like right now saying lifted the restrictions we're looking at the science and the science says that the spike in omicron is going straight down. when you get to the bottom of that no reason why we can't lift all these restrictions that will immediately change how everybody feels about their life, feels about their government because right now it's the government who's telling them not to do those things it's the government that's that's making you feel a little bad about should i go see the batman at the beginning of next month you know should i go out to dinner should i go to a super bowl party you know all these kinds of things that are happening every day where like my asthmatic son is going to you know high school every day with a mask on and it's just awful you know and You know, you hear those stories all the time or like, you know, a friend of yours had COVID. So, you know, all those things going through, if those recede into the background and you have low unemployment, you have jobs for most people who want to get them and you have high growth, which is what's going on right now, and you stay out of, you know, the trap in Ukraine if you sort of muddle through on a couple of other things, like you know, there's a Me Too bill that you could run on in certain, you know, areas, there's a you know, build back better, it may not happen, but the infrastructure bill did, and you might see a new bridge or at least things being fixed in your area. You know, there are certain things that you can add up in your mind if you're a Democrat to say, hey, you know, the things aren't as bad now as they were in January or they were in February. So I think that people need to be number one patient. And number two, if you're a Democrat, be optimistic that things are going to turn around um, in the country. If you're a Republican, what you're hoping for is that things don't change, (laughs) is that supply chains still jack up inflation. You still can't get your favorite toilet paper. You know, you feel like, um, you know, the masks, you you know, we go through not Omicron, but we go through Zeta and all of a sudden now we're masked up again. Um, Because the fact of the matter is that they don't have anything beyond what they want for their base which is immigration and you know a lot of other pieces that are just sort of narrow casting you know you and i had a good discussion about broadcasting versus narrow casting before we got on they're they're narrow casting to their base to get them out and it goes run totally counter to what i say in the book which is like you've done enough to max out your base you now have to figure out how to win sort of these other districts but again like i said to you before i think the house is gone because too many retirements. I think the Senate is still reasonably in play, uh, where the um, Senate could stay Democrat. uh, But it's going to be difficult. It's going to be very difficult.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, I I, want to pick up on the word malaise, which has, uh, yeah, that that has a rich political history in America. But it is interesting. I mean, first of all, that basically the best course for Republicans is to be the scheudenfreude party. I know. I just used a thousand dollar word here, but you know, shameful joy. You're kind of rooting for failure here. It's it's a bad it's a bad spot to be in, and I, I I sort of I don't envy it because Democrats were just in this position not long ago. You're sort of rooting for things to go badly because it bolstered the basic case. This this goes back to the, the classic 1984 Ronald Reagan question which was written by my former grad school mentor David Gergen. Are you better off than you were 4 years ago? Interestingly, very interestingly, interesting. he went back when I was taking classes from him, he was very critical of himself for writing that line. He said he left it short. It's a great one. He, he was he was happy with saying you know with the with the part that became famous, are you better off. But he said that it's too individualistic it's not aspirational enough for the country. What he should have gone on to say is, is our country, is our nation better off? Are we collectively- Are we the, better off
1: than we were? Are well.
0: we better off? Yeah. And I, I, it kind of leads into the place I wanted to go. And it's, it's sort of a, this is a mismatch of, of, of a bit of a question, but I've been so interested in how many Americans are telling pollsters That the country is off on the wrong track and that they are that they have a negative view they're disapproving of the the job that the president is doing when there is so much that we can measure that is going so much better than it was a year ago and so i it just suggests all of these things that I, wa- I wanna I want lean on your polling expertise as well as your general political sure. expertise to probe a little bit. First of all, my contention is that when you ask, and you used to work for Gallup and Gallup does the most sort of, I think the, the, the best version of this right track, wrong track question, which is, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with the direction of the country? And what you find is that over the last 40 years, a median of 66% of Americans have answered, no, we're dissatisfied. Most of the time, two-thirds of Americans are saying they're, they're dissatisfied. My contention, though, is that pollsters may be asking the, the elevated version of that David Gergen question, the how are you feeling about the country? But I think what people are hearing is the, is the first version, which is how are you doing and how are you feeling? What do you make of that? Am I am I off base on that?
1: You know, it's funny. Um, that question is there's a lot of different versions of that question. And really how you ask that question is really super important. In fact, like you can ask the question, you know, are things in the country on the right track or the wrong track? So if you put country up front, that's one piece of it. Mm. And then you also could put as a follow-up, um, you know, how about in your own life? You know, are things on the right track or are things off on the wrong track? The one thing they usually don't do with those questions is they don't randomize the order of those two. Mm. So you usually get, and I've been, I, I've done this as well, usually get sort of the macro question, you know, how's the country going? And then the the micro question, how are you doing? generally the how are you doing is better than how the country's going when you ask it Mm, okay what they usually don't do and which i do recommend you know first of all i mean when you look at polling error it's not just sampling error that's the that's the margin of error that everyone sees like but there are many different kinds of error when you're looking at polls or any kind of research one of them is question order so if i ask you straight up you know are things in your life better off now than they were four years ago or two years ago, compared, compared to the, you may give one answer. Then you ask about the country, that's actually a different way to frame it. So if you think, for example, that people are over indexing on reading the question, you know, right track, wrong track, and they're just taking it internally, mm. and you have to flip that question, at least for half your sample, to say that okay, well, people have then. I'm giving you the question first about you, and then I'm asking about the country. Mm. People don't do that. Gallup doesn't do that either, and I think it's a mistake. And I think it's a mistake because, like you said, some people just interpret that as like, well, how am I doing? You know, the because con- people America is very individualistic. Okay, it's one of the reasons why your former you know professor said to you, you know how you know are you better off? You know than you were four years ago because that's what resonates in politics. It's not like country first. It's generally you, your community, and then you build up to your country. Like that's how we f- sort of look at politics. It's like how is it affecting exactly. me, and then everything else. So in the question that we're asking to gate to gauge how things are going, you need to actually do it in such a way that you're randomizing the question about you versus the question about your country. And frankly, most um, pollsters and even the very good ones don't do that but well, that's a and, source and of terror
0: yeah well and to build and to build on that point I mean that's exactly sort of where I was going and where I mm-hmm. get my my case from if you look at trends in the general social survey which a lot of public opinion uh, researchers use what you uh-huh. find is that we are right now at an all-time low in people saying that they're very happy. That's 14% of respondents, only 14% say they're very happy in this country, but we're at an all-time high in people saying that they're satisfied with their family's financial situation, 80%. So just think about that mismatch for a second.
1: I mean, it's COVID. That's the answer. Like If you take away COVID, that 14% gets a lot closer to that financial number. And for some people to be higher, some people would be lower, but covid regardless of whether or not you have a job and you're doing really well um shout out to lisa cohen my wife who just got a new job at fidelity super hey excited congratulations yeah great for her and you know great for all of us and you know better big job
0: firm in new hampshire by the way for all our radio listeners
1: big firm in new big hampshire fans, right yeah that's, what, that's why i brought it out i knew you'd love that yeah 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 um, yeah. <laughs> yeah she gets to work remotely thank god so we get to stay married which is nice also good yeah, oh, yeah it was also important. very good very yeah, important, very important. Um, but yeah, I mean, but if you asked us like, you know, how are things going? Well, I mean, we're just bundling through, I mean, you know, like everyone else. So I don't know that I would be, you know, on the, on the right side of that, even though our financial situation and our job situation, and our other thing situation is better than it was a couple of years ago. I mean, I still think that you would look at that and go, well, I guess I'm a no, you know, and, and I'm a relatively happy guy. And it's just, you know, when you look at it, the one thing that's hanging over us is the thing, you know, the thing that, we, that won't leave and hopefully will leave at the end of this month because the cases are going down. So I, I think that there isn't much of a mismatch. I think people are actually answering that very well. They're saying, okay, well, my life is not just about finances. It's also about other stuff. Now, if you ask the question as a follow-up, well, okay, so you're not feeling great right now. Why not? The top number, the top answer will be COVID. Yeah. And so you know that, that will bring the context to everything um, that I think that you're looking at there.
0: Well, and I think that I mean, that really does kind of go to this larger issue of we're, we're seeing very strong economic numbers. Now I know, I know, you get this kind of knee-jerk response from pundits of, yeah, but inflation side. Okay, it is. And people I, I think people react. We, we know from social science, People react more strongly to inflation than they do to other economic inputs into their lives. Which is because why?
1: Tell me why. Because it affects you directly, right? The GDP doesn't affect me. Okay, right. growth is not it is not a thing. Even the unemployment numbers don't affect me because if I have a job and if you, if you have, have a, a job,
0: why do you care that other people are getting right? Right.
1: Right. But, but inflation is. Inflation is something you deal with every time you buy something. And so that's the, mo- it's like, for example, like I can't tell you um, what my at and bill is for the month, but I can tell you what gas prices are because I see it every single time because it's yeah. there. Okay. When I go and buy something, that number is right in my face. And I know intuitively whether it's higher or lower. And if it's higher, damn, I got to blame somebody, you know, and, or something. I buy it.
0: I buy it. I t- I totally do. And yet, and yet, and yet, I find that it it's an unsatisfying answer to me in two ways. One is to some degree, you also see your paycheck every yeah. two weeks or whenever you get it. And if you look at it, wages are up and they're up most for the bottom segment of wage earners. They're up. In fact, more than inflation for the bottom segment of wage earners. Okay. And, and for, that, for the bottom half, they're pretty much running even. So even though you're getting that daily reminder, if you're going mm-hmm. to the grocery store or you're, you're buying gas of, wow, prices are up, you're also getting a bi-weekly reminder of, hey, I'm making more money. Now, I, I know that those things don't totally offset psychologically. Even no. if economically they do offset, psychologically they don't offset.
1: Right, and, and the like, reason why, and the reason why is because, well, I'm getting ahead, so I should be able to keep more. Why can't I keep more inflation? So like, it, it almost becomes like, if I'm making a lot more money, I should be able to keep a lot more money. Why aren't I keeping a lot more money? Inflation. Oh, well, these knuckleheads get their brains together because I'm doing great. You know, but, but this system is failing me somehow. And so, so it ends up being like, again, it's a, it's a me, it's a micro versus macro situation. I'm doing great. The system's not doing great. So I don't feel good about it because I should be doing better. And and that's, that's the way people think about it. When you talk to them in focus groups or when you talk to them and you give them a chance to talk more than just, you know, because people think comparatively, right,
0: right. They care, they care a lot more. They, they, and we've seen this in, in in social science experiments and economic experiments. You see that people are actually willing to get a lower income as long as it's better than their neighbors. They actually are willing to take less money. They, they're willing to hurt themselves to be doing better than the people around them. It's kind of crazy.
1: But look. But again, this, is just, this is just people against themselves, though. I mean, this right, is more right, right. internal than comparative to everybody else. This is more like well, I'm doing great. I'm doing my job. My job is to take care of my family. The people who aren't doing their jobs are whoever else, you know, it's gotta be Biden because he's president. You know, I don't know how this works, but it's gotta be Biden because when I had Trump and I didn't have as much inflation, right? And so I'm doing great, I'm doing my job. They're not doing their job. That's why I'm unhappy with them. That's how that works.
0: All fair points. And yet. And yet, and yet, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, inflation isn't everything. And mm-hmm. there. when you it's have of millions of Americans getting jobs or leaving jobs, which we've seen in record numbers, which shows people are really bullish on their own economic prospects. And when you see that people's checking accounts have risen by an average of 50%, over the course of the pandemic. So people are flush with cash. They're flush with jobs. They're flush with opportunities. I'm just saying that inflation is a very in your face and, and heavily weighted psychological factor, but it doesn't seem like a full enough explanation for how pessimistic people are, especially when you look at the trend over the last 40 years. And over the last 10 years, that number of 66% saying they're dissatisfied, has been 71%. It's been even higher. I, to me, I, it goes back to your word, malaise. When Jimmy Carter applied it, it was like, oh man, you're a bummer, dude. Why, why are you saying that? But I think he was right. I think that we have been living through a 40-year and now a 10-year, especially, malaise where people are deeply unhappy. And you see it in all kinds of statistics. And I guess my basic contention is this. I just don't know that our political system or our government system is well equipped to deal with that. The zone has been flooded by so many factors in society and culture and economics that bum us out. I don't think that we are equipped, certainly not Congress, I'll tell you that much. I don't think we are equipped. It's not something that the political system is meant to be able to tackle. And is going to be able to be able to tackle. That's my, that's my argument.
1: Well, I don't think you're wrong. I mean, I think um, I would describe it more as a restlessness. Like I think, I think, I think Americans have been at least in the past 40, 45 years-ish, just very restless. Like there was something very aspirational about being American, but over the years, both parties have done this where it's been public square is not the place for aspiration and even when like you find with a barack obama or you find a um you know bill clinton who's very aspirational um or ronald reagan um those are temporary because all of a sudden something happens and then we grab onto it and we're like okay you know now i feel terrible about this so it's no longer morning in america it's a contra it's no longer Clinton, you know, building a bridge to the 21st century, which was beautiful imagery, it was Monica Lewinsky, you know, and the Star Report. Um, It was no longer Obama, um, you know, reaching for, you know, hope, you know, hopey, hopey changing, you know, things. And um, it was Benghazi or something else, you know, so there's always something that seems to be weighing on us. And I I think that for some reason or other, like the country hasn't figured out a way to sort of understand that it's hard being a superpower. Like, there are just a lot of responsibilities on us and that, you know, we are very critical in our culture of each other. We're very critical on literature and media. Uh, we're critical interpersonally, we're not as connected as we used to be, you know, is the, the whole bull and the lone stuff, um, that, that's real. It was, We're not going to church together or a synagogue together as much anymore. Um, And I think that all of those things are sort of breaking the bonds down from us individually. There hasn't been, the parties haven't figured out a way to attack each other and still boost America. You know, it's that person has screwed America up or that party has screwed up America for you. And instead of like, we are going to do this and it will be better. I that's think that's, that's, I mean, that's exactly right. And, and,
0: and honestly, that is, I couldn't have said it better myself. That's what I think we're not well-equipped as, as a political culture to deal with is people are losing their bonds. They're being driven by social media into all kinds of crazy arguments. Our political culture and our system is not well-equipped to deal with that. But We're going to have to leave it on that highfalutin and important note. The book is Modern Political Campaigns. The guest is Mike Cohen. Check him out on Twitter. Go buy the book. And Mike, we'll have to have you back.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's always a great discussion.